الرحمن الرحيم الله صلى الله عوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وما خلقت الجن والانس الا ليعبدون ما اريد منهم من رزق وما اريد ان يطعمون ان الله هو الرزاق ذو القوه المتين Continuing from the discussion from the previous ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us that he has created the heavens with immense force, immense power. And he has facilitated life on earth by making it a kind of bed. carpet to walk on and uh, with this he has now given the mukallaf the human being who's responsible to follow Allah's orders or the necessary props with which he can perform his duty of serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Here in this ayah, Allah mentions that duty, what is the duty of all human beings, and so on. And all jinns, as I mentioned previously, ikhtiyar, volition, is a huge theme in the Qur'an, that human beings have volition, and they have the ability to choose between two, the Zawjain that Allah mentions, the pairs, what is halal and what is haram, what is kufr and what is shirk and iman and so on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the purpose of the creation of species with volition. So I have not created the jinn nor the ins, meaning human beings, except that they should worship me. So that is the purpose of creation. The objective is that human beings should worship Allah and the jinn species should also worship Allah. That is the objective, the purpose, that is their destination. And so, I mean, Allah has given the human the ability to worship Allah at will, with choice, not with compulsion. Meaning this is the, uh, what we call the Amrutta Shari'ah, as opposed to the Amrutta Queen. So in the uh, Taqwini sense, in the sense of following the order of the cosmos, human beings need to worship Allah. to fulfill their objective and to basically meet their Lord and so on. So some human beings do and some do not. And likewise, the jinn species also have the same ability to choose this way or that way. 
So here there's many discussions about this verse. It's a very well-known verse. Uh, there are many books written on this, and people give three, four-hour lectures on this verse every time they talk about it. And every verse of the Qur'an is obviously uh, a sifa of Allah. It's an attribute of Allah. So there's always a lot of nur, a lot of hikmah, and a lot of knowledge but this is the purpose of creation, that, you know, what we call the raison d'etre. People asking, why am I here on this planet? This is why you're here. You're here to worship Allah and to serve Allah and to praise Him and to do everything you can to please Him and so on. So this summarizes life, basically. What is the meaning of life? This is the meaning of life. Without this, you have no life, basically. Okay, you'll be roaming around like a headless chicken, not knowing your purpose, your destiny, your, you know, your reason, and everything else. So Allah is what gives the human being reason to exist. Right? That's what they call raison d'etre, the French phrase. Um, your reason for existence is to worship Allah. And this doesn't mean community service. <laughs> Don't confuse it with community service. I'm here to serve human beings. No. You can do that as part of your Islam, part of your zakat and sadaqah, and part of you following the sunnah that uh, you, you, you may serve people, help people, but it's not ibadah. No? Ibadah you do with the explicit intention to receive reward from Allah, not to serve people. Right? Yeah. So that's why we believe non-Muslims, if they do good deeds, they are not rewarded. So for them is not ibadah. Then this ayah will not apply to them. So if the purpose of creation and human beings and jinn is to worship Allah, which is what the word ibadah means, then ibadah must result in reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which will occur in Jannah. So it is not secular. It is not humanistic. It is very, very Islamic Uh, in that way that the non-Muslims who have the ability, potential to worship Allah should become Muslim and then worship Allah. Then the ayah makes perfect sense. So whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, the purpose of you is that you worship Allah through the institution of ibadah, which yields reward and salvation. Seeing, witnessing Allah in Jannah. That is how you see the ayah, holistically and comprehensively. Do not confuse it with human service. That my working and earning a living and then offering my family is also ibadah. No. Not in theory, because the non-Muslim does that too. He definitely is not rewarded for that. That is the Quranic theology that we follow. We don't know about your theology, but Quranic theology is very clear. 
Again, we confuse the language. Every time there's an issue that you don't agree with, this seems that there's inequality and this is not unjust and this is all of that. Although that's a kind of footnote, but uh, I have to mention it so that you're not confused. So it is exclusively for believers. That is why in one qirah, there is the addition of lil mu'mineen. وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ الْإِنسِ Mm. So there's a qirat there, and Ibn Abbas has also used that qirat to understand the meaning of this ayah and so on. So it is not based on our speculation that we're saying this. We don't speculate in matters of aqidah. Matters of aqidah are conclusive, they are qat'i. They're based on foolproof evidence from the scripture, okay, from wahi. There's no aql inserted to any aqidah. The fact that Jannah exists is not necessarily aqli. It doesn't have to be proven rationally. It is from wahi that you know there is a Jannah. But if you bring it into a discussion of physics and science, you say, where is the... Proof for that. There's no proof of Jannah in the universe. So, so there we say, it doesn't matter for us. This is Aqidah. This is a source of knowledge that is beyond us. This comes from the Prophets, alayhi and not from our Aql. It can be rationalized after the fact, after the fact, but not before. No. Anyway, so this is now an ayah that if uh, Muslims uh, take to it and understand it and then worship Allah. There's a conclusion to worshipping Allah. That's part of the discussion. When you worship Allah and you witness him, as in the hadith of Ihsan, that you must see Allah when you worship him. Worship there is not limited to salat. That's another, you know, misunderstand that people have. That the hadith of Ihsan talks about worshipping Allah, not just doing salat. Right? And Allah That you worship Allah as if you're seeing him. That is not limited to salat. It goes across all ibadat. That when you worship Allah either through salat, through psalm, zakat or hajj, you are witnessing him, you are seeing him. In Salat, obviously, you're supposed to see him. Likewise, in Zakat, and uh, what do you call it, the Sadaqah, the Prophet said that the Zakat and Sadaqah falls into the hand of Allah first. Then Allah gives the recipient. So you're not actually giving the Zakat. <laughs> Another misconception. I gave zakat. No, you didn't. Allah gave zakat on your behalf. That's what the hadith says. Except you don't witness Allah when you give. You don't witness Allah because they have this silly card doing the transaction for you. In the good old days, it will be you giving the zakat into the hand of the faqir, which is much more organic. 
Now, modern day life has made it difficult for us to witness Ihsan also. So, anyway, there you go. <laughs> then in Psalm, Allah says, As-Sawmuli. Psalm is for me. You witness Allah. And Hajj is all about witnessing Allah. Okay? So witnessing Allah is your ihsan. And the effect of worship, ibadah, should be this witnessing. Should be this ihsan. That's the ultimate goal. Based on that, Ibn Abbas anhuma says that the meaning of this is so that they recognize me and they know me. Li'arifuni. Right? But it's a conclusion to the ibadah. It's the last link in ibadah. That's why he says that ultimately it's about knowing who Allah is. It's about recognizing Allah. That Allah is my Lord. He comes to me this way and this way and this way. Sometimes there are good days and sometimes there are not so good days. Sometimes the test is severe. Sometimes the test is light and sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're sad and sometimes you're okay with life and sometimes you're not okay with life. That is the recognition of Allah that Ibn Abbas is talking about so that you get to know who Allah is. And that's why you have various forms of ibadah, not just one. It's not just praying or kneeling. You have all these different types of ibadat. Ibadat that require wudu, tahara, facing the qibla and the kaaba. Ibadat that requires you don't eat and drink. Ibadat that require that you give money. And ibadat that require that you do otherwise. Very nonsensical things. <laughs> the Hajj, <laughs> the Hajj outside for the Muslim, outside the Muslim, uh, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You're going around a square building in circles. <laughs> you're going from Safa to Marwa. In the middle, you run a little bit, and you go and throw stones at a stone, pull the Jabarat, and okay, you don't dress the way you usually dress, and you sacrifice an animal, and then you shave your head. There's nothing ugly, rational about the rituals of Hajj. So Allah strips you of your aqal also. You do it because you love Allah. If you sit there and you start analyzing, as mashallah, many American Muslims, they want to analyze everything before they do it. Then they get lost. Then they're concerned about why they're confused. The confusion is self-imposed. You don't insert your aqal everywhere. You have to leave some things for Allah to do and take care of. So recognizing who Allah is through ibadah is the ultimate goal of ibadah. So Ibn Abbas gives the tafsir is that uh, we have created jinn and ins only so that they may recognize who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. But it works. So ibadah is a specific set of ritual worship Okay, that can only be performed by a Muslim, as the Muslim is the only one who will receive reward, inshallah, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is where you bring in your volition. As the surah, as I mentioned, has to do with volition. Your volition should be used this way, that you are worshipping Allah. And everything else now leads to you worshipping. So on a daily basis, your routine should be 
I'm doing all this to prepare for Salat. I'm sleeping to prepare for Salat. Okay, I'm going to go to work and get some food on the table so I can prepare for Salat. You can say this. If it's Salat focused, then the ayah makes sense for the Muslim and so on. I'm going to save up money so I can go for Hajj. I need to pay zakat, so I have to organize my life that way. So I pay zakat first, not last. And then you fast in Ramadan and you prepare yourselves to fast for 30 days. So your organizing of your life has to be ibadah focused, not life focused. And that happens with us in the mundane sense. We all do this and we all set ourselves. Uh, a plan and an agenda for almost every day, every week, every month, every year, and for our lives. We have now savings and 401k and God knows what, okay, for a purpose, so that you know, you're earning money for that. Yeah? Yeah. You're build, building a house for something that is going to be beneficial and useful for you and your family, and so on. So the ultimate purpose for life should be ibadah. And that is how the prophets are, that's how the Sahaba are, and that's how the Muslim Ummah used to be, that their lives were all focused around ibadah and worshipping Allah and pleasing Allah and so on and so forth. So that is your use of your volition, your free will. Once you have this understanding, then the understanding of the cosmos comes to you. Now you're in sync. You're in harmony with the taqween, with Allah's creation because you have molded yourself according to the hukum of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. مَا أُرِيدُ مِنْهُمْ مِنْ رِزْقٍ وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ يُطْعِمُونَ Again, loaded ayah. It has many, many applications uh, for people like us living in the West and so on. What is the role of government? What is, the, you know, the, your philosophy of economics and what does Islam have to do with life? <laughs> All of that good stuff. Mm. Yeah, if you open it up, it will be a six-hour discussion. Maybe more. So here Allah categorically says, I don't want from them any risk. Meaning, I don't want them uh, to provide risk for others. Right? Because the next part is about him. وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ يُطْعِمُونِ I don't want them to feed me. So this means that you don't want, Allah doesn't want us to feed him. He doesn't need food. He is independent. But also the first part of the ayah, I don't want any rizq that is incumbent upon them to provide. Meaning they are not the custodians of human beings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That responsibility of providing rizq Theologically, is on Allah. Then as a representative of the Rasul, as a Khalifa of the Rasul, then as a Muslim government, you have a trust, an amana, that you are fulfilling on behalf of the Prophet and that's why you provide for the Ummah. In that order... The theology must be there. If the theology is not there, then you know you can't have Islamic economics without theology. In fact, nothing in Islam works without theology. The aqidah has to be there. 
So Allah is the one who provides for every living creature, which is what the ayah says, وَمَا مِنْ دَابَّتٍ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ رِزْقُهَا That Allah is in charge, Allah feeds, Allah provides for species, the word dabba, creature, anything that crawls, anything that lives, anything that exists. Okay, how does Allah provide now, you know, for the trees? Rizq. How does Allah provide for all the millions and different types of species on the earth, in the air, in the sea? Human beings can't do that. Right? If you calculate the amount of plankton that's needed for sea life, you'll be mesmerized. There's not human beings who go and give all the fish in the sea plankton. <laughs> who does that? I mean, you're not God. So don't play God. Don't assume. You are responsible for a certain group of people as an amana, and that too as an ibadah. Right? Not necessarily as a humanistic service and an economic responsibility, whatever you want to call it. Right? So Allah is the one that provides for each individual creature. You can never do that. It is beyond computation. So just because you feed 10,000 people doesn't mean to say that you're God. So get that out of your mind and your mindset. You're not God, you're not playing God. Because you feed your family, you're now on top of them, and you have to say, I feed you. (laughs) Who feeds you? Yeah. So there, the ethic of the ayah is that you are not going to play God uh, where Allah is doing the work that he does and only he can do. Yeah. So food, nourishment, risk comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're just a tool for delivering Allah's risk. You're an ala, you're a tool, you're an instrument and a provider for what Allah gives you. Yes, uh, the Prophet said, observe that. I am the one that distributes, but Allah is the one who gives. Whatever I distribute comes from Allah. But I have some prerogatives which you don't have. And that is as the role of, as a Nabi, as a Rasul, and someone who's responsible for the Ummah, and so on. So Allah doesn't want human beings to assume that they can play God and then, what do you call it, restrict food for some and give more food to others. That's another way to play God, where you monopolize sources and you don't make it a fair play. And there's no system of justice in the way you distribute your resources and everything else. So this is all about understanding that Allah allows equal access to risk that he provides. Human beings, they come in and disturb, distort, and corrupt the system that Allah has provided, as I mentioned throughout the surah. So when people come to distort, destroy, and distort Allah's system, then Allah will come in and destroy them as in the previous nations of Ad and Thamud and Musa, uh, Musa's Pharaoh and so on. So here's about volition, that uh, if you want to represent human beings, you have to follow the nidham, the system that Allah has created. You cannot follow that system because you don't have the power to do so. 
you don't have the longevity, you don't have the durability, you don't live that long and you don't have that kind of might and stamina, nor do you have what it takes to provide for everyone and so on. So this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, that he doesn't want people to assume they must feed uh, as being God. They feed others out of altruism, which is a form of ibadah. Not community service. And I think that's where the problem is. We all want to do community service. Do it as an ibadah. If you do an ibadah, there's much more barakah than doing it for humanitarian reasons and so on. Yes, the key is that you must do it. Whichever way you do it, you do it. <laughs> so someone who does it for humanitarian reasons is still better than the guy who has theology but doesn't do anything. So that shouldn't be a cop-out. My aqidah is right, therefore you do, you have to act. You have to be generous, you have to be altruistic, you have to be feeling for other people's uh, you know, feelings and be sensitive to their needs and so on. This is part of your whole ibadah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us through uh, Islam and so on. Nor does he want you to feed him. He is in no need of anything from you. He is in no need of ibadah from you either. So when you're sacrificing an animal and you do a qurbani, the qurbani, he doesn't need. He wants to see what's in your niya. Are you willing to do something for his sake without questioning? Inna Allaha huwa razaq Indeed. This is what I just said. Indeed, Allah, he is the one who is the super razaq, provider of risk, and so on. You see, there's a, an interplay between the word risk and the word ta'am. In the previous ayah, here Allah doesn't say mut'im, that he provides food. Although in a dua, we do mention it. Alhamdulillah, we mention that all praise is due to Allah who has fed us. So that is there. Wasaqana, and then given us a drink, which is not food. And then, the ultimate name, وَجَعَلَنَا مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Made us Muslim. That dua summarizes your approach to life, basically. Anyway, so here there's an interplay between the word rizq and ta'am. Ta'am is food, something that you eat. Rizq is more than food. It could be anything that is a blessing from Allah that helps you sustain your life. It could be knowledge, it could be intellect, it could be good moral uh, behavior and uh, all of that good stuff and so on. That will be translated into thawab in Jannah. So we are given risk in Jannah, which is the uh, translation of the good deeds in the world. So these good deeds translate to good things in Jannah. So there's a difference. So food is something that uh, people consume, they digest. Risk is much broader than that. It's something that stays with you and something that you can use for a long period of time. Health, for instance, is a form of risk. 
and so on. So here Allah says, indeed Allah, He is the one who is the super razaq. He provides you with everything you need in order to sustain life. That is what He does. And He does it all the time. Razaq, intensive mubalaqa. He's doing this continuously all the time. So even when you're not eating, He's sustaining you. You still have life, you still have a body, you're still breathing. <laughs> Your body's functioning, the world is there. All the props around you, they still exist, so you still the razaq, and so on. So then the ta'am will be specific for specific individuals at specific times. Razaq is now 24-7, and for all species, not just human beings. Yeah, so this is the uh, might and power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in the ayah where Allah says that we have created the heavens with immense power and force, Allah now brings this force and power down to earth, literally, and he says we have so much strength that we are perpetually providing people with the risk, which takes energy and strength and, you know, what do you call it, kingdom longevity, knowledge, wisdom, planning, organizing, delivering, hence the natural attribute that comes from the sifa, the attribute of razaq is he is one of immense power. In order to be a razaq, you need to be strong. You need to be durable, which is al-mateen, the one who is durable, has durability, eternal durability, and so on. So there's a lot of power when you have the ability to provide. And herein lies the secret to Islamic theory of economics. I'm not going to expand on it just in case one of you guys decide you want to do it, and you'll make a mess of it. Yeah, but if you want to take a course, enroll in Dara Qasim, somewhere down the line in year six you'll get there. <laughs> but if you ponder on this ayah, then there's immense power if you know how to provide everything. And so Allah has immense power and durability because He is providing everything 24 7 perpetually in this world in the grave, on the day of judgment, in Jannah, eternally. Where we are just kind of small little wimps, we provide a few things for one or two people for a few years, and then they provide us as we die. That's the fate of the human being. They're just wimps, basically, weaklings in front of the divine. That's why they're in need of the divine. And the divine is not in need of them, and so on. So this ayah is uh, an immense ayah for those who are into uh, understanding how the world actually works and how Allah's nidham works and how uh, we must try and find fodder in the divine system. If you try and mirror the divine system, you'll get something like a Muslim state. But if you mirror the secular system, you'll get nothing but the jal. 
said the Jali system. And there'll be no Baraka in it. <laughs> you have the greatest superpower on the earth, and you have you know, millions of people who are homeless in the richest state of the country. You know the richest state in the country? They're on the west coast. Millions of homeless people. Is that Razakhiya? Or is that the Jaliya? You be the judge. <laughs> it's not a system that you can say, oh, they've made it. They haven't made it anywhere. But that's on the Muslim mind. You always want to copy something that's not yours. The other is always better. The grass is always greener on the other side. But we can't do that anymore. Because we don't have kuwa. You can only do this if you have kuwa. You must need, you need economic strength, you need money, you need wealth to be able to pull this off. You can't be weaklings, you can't be, you, you know, beggars, you know, saying that I want to create a Muslim system uh, of, you now what do you call it, risk, and providing risk, but you don't have any money. That's called fantasizing, right? So you can fantasize about it, but on the ground, what do you need on the ground? You need resources, and how do you cultivate and develop those resources? That's, that's a process that takes a generation, takes two generations. Do you have the patience to do that, or you want something overnight? Right? So all these flamboyant lectures and fantastic ideas that people throw around, they're not the solution. The solution is to develop the ummah ground up. So the first thing the Prophet Sassam said when he came into Medina, is At-Imutam. You see how you develop the resources? It's a prophetic model. But, you know, Muslims of today won't buy it because they're secular. Feed people. He's telling this to people who don't have food. If you have one date shared with your brother, that's called feeding I mean, it doesn't work in the secular mind. You have no money and you said fee people. So it's the ibadah factor that when you feed people, you are performing an ibadah. The ibadah has longevity because it is eternal. You'll be rewarded in Jannah, which is eternity, for that action. And when you're rewarded there, the barakah will be here. It starts here. So when you have, you know, 10 people feeding each other, you are performing ibadah. Through ibadah, you are now creating a divine system. A system that follows the divine system. So that's the key. So again, ibadah, that becomes central to the whole idea. Now, this is kind of micro, and you develop so it becomes the macro, right? So the khalifa sees himself as uh, somebody who is delivering the amana of food that comes from Allah to his people. And that's an ibadah, basically. So, so that's how you are going to see how this works. It doesn't work unless you have people who give, and it doesn't work if you don't have money yourself. Yeah, so that's why some of the sahaba became very rich, and they donated thousands and thousands of dirhams to the community and they provided for so many people at the time of, uh, you know, Tabuk. Sahaba who were rich gave almost everything in gold coins, mashallah. 
So what I'm saying is that uh, we have to uh, understand that our ikhtiyar, our volition, must be in line with Allah's intent. And that is divine, Allah's intent. So that's how we see this playing out in society, in the Muslim ummah and so on. But you can't do that without having something with you. Yeah. So the Prophet made sure that altruism is not necessarily linked with how much money you have or how much risk you have. Is linked to your niya. Uh, somebody given one dollar with a good niya, obviously, Islamically, is much better than someone who gives a thousand dollars where the niya is wrong. The barakah is in the ibadah. The barakah is not in vanity. And so, so that is individual. You must be introspective. And you can't blame others if they're not doing it. You can't point fingers, which destroys the fabric of the ummah also. Then you're always blaming other people for your miseries. Um, so you can't do that. Get up and do the work yourself. That a Sahabi came to the Prophet and asked him for a donation. The Prophet said, is there anyone here who can lend this brother an axe? So one Sahabi stood up and said, I have an axe at home. He said, bring it. So the Prophet took it and gave it to this person who was asking for a donation. He said, go and cut some wood and sell it. Right? We would say, oh, this brother needs money, so give him money. <laughs> the Prophet saw beyond that. He said, no, no, you're independent. You're strong. You're young. You can earn yourself. Why are you asking others for them to help you? Help yourself. You know? So they made sure that they weren't lazy and they didn't rely on other people other than Allah's followers. So that's part of ibadah. Now you see how this system develops at a micro level, individual by individual by individual. You reform individuals so that the community is reformed. So if you reform 10 people, then you have a community of 10 people that are doing the right stuff. And so on. So when you say that it is economics, obviously economics is a word that is invented. It's a bidah. Okay, we never had the word economics in our language uh, before the secular world came in. Okay, there's a word for that, iqtisadiya. Iqtisadiya actually means taking care of your family and your household activities and your duties. That's why the word was originally used for. Which makes sense. That ibda biman ta'ul. The Prophet said, begin with the one whom you are raising and taking care of. Okay, so if you're taking care of your parents, take care of them. Taking care of your wife and children and your spouse, take care of them. Taking care of your brothers and sisters, take care of them. First, the ibda biman ta'ul, take care of them first, make sure they're provided for. If you're stingy there, you have no altruism. Uh, then you can't say that I'm going to give a thousand dollars and I'll, I'll be a very you know, generous person. No, you can't neglect. I don't mean that you, you spend tons and tons of money on your family, become you know hedonistic, and have a luxurious style uh, lifestyle. I'm just saying that you have to fulfill your duty where it's an actual ibadah. So from that perspective, taking care of your family definitely is an ibadah because of the niyyah. Uh, yeah. So this is all about uh, knowing where to, how to earn, where to spend. And that's how the Ummah was very, very successful 
And so without an economic theory, we didn't have an economic theory. <laughs> All the modern secular Muslims, they want an economic theory. We never had one. <laughs> the beauty was in doing, not in thinking. We just did. We were muhsinun. We did things with ihsan, with perfection, with altruism. It was just there. It was a natural, organic order of the cosmos. We didn't need sophisticated language and you know, an MBA and uh, macroeconomics and microeconomics. We just did. Now, that may not work anymore. I understand that. Now, you need to be trained somewhat in, in some form of finance economics. But, uh, you know, what I'm saying is that the, if the purpose of your existence as a state, and so the individual has an existence and the state has an existence, if the purpose of the state is to feed, then that is the wrong purpose. The purpose of the state is the same as the purpose of the individual, and that is to worship Allah. That is ibadah, pure and simple. Underneath the umbrella of ibadah, you feed, and you develop resources, and so on. So that's how we see these ayat playing out, that if you want the system of the cosmos to work in your favor, you must follow the cosmos in its submission to Allah's will. Everything submits Allah's will, every creation. You as a creation with volition, you must also submit to Allah's will. If the two are in sync, then they have harmony. And if the two are not in sync, then you have corruption, facade, basically. That is the theme of the whole surah, all right? From the beginning here to the end, where we have one ayah, فَالْمُقَسِّمَاتِ amra, by the angels who distribute Allah's command. So obviously they're guided, and they have ilham from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they know what to do, and they perform their duties and their tasks. If human beings can access that level of, um, you know, intuition from Allah, through Islam, through ibadat, then they'll also be successful. Alhamdulillah, as we were. فَإِنَّ لِلَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا ذَنُوبًا مِثْلَ ذَنُوبِ أَصْحَابِهِمْ فَلَا يُسْتَعْجِلُونَ And invariably, when Anbiya والسلام, come and warn people about the consequences of them using or misusing their volition, then they become impatient, and they use a certain amount of rejection, denial, sarcasm, and they throw those accusations against the prophets. So Allah says to the prophets, وسلم, that indeed for those people who are unjust and transgressors, uh, they have now a turn that they will be asked to and forced to use their turn on the day of judgment uh, at the very least. The nuban comes from the word them which refers to taking turns, drawing water from the grand well of the village. So the village would have a huge well. There are smaller wells here and there. But when you go to the, the, the market well, then you have a large bucket, and you can only go there when it's your turn. Dhamban, which refers to Allah subhanahu wa saying that when your turn comes, Okay, to pick up your punishment, it will be then, then you will see who's in control. Mithlas harbim, like their companions. So don't rush. 
Okay, don't hasten the punishment and don't ask for punishment before the time comes. So this Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given uh, reassurance to the Prophet that your turn will come to go into Jannah, but their turn will come to pick up their punishment. And so on. So this is how uh, the surah is ending. That is uh, reassuring the Prophet that those who are, unjust, again, the key word there is zalamu, uh, injustice, the, uh, injustice, the, not in a secular sense. Uh, people who don't worship Allah, they are unjust in the shirk al zulm and but you can't throw that in the, you know, post-Jeffersonian human rights discussion. <laughs> I don't see any injustice. You have freedom of religion. You can do whatever you want. And, Allah calls it injustice, meaning eventually it is injustice. You've been unjust towards God. So you know that Allah has rights. Not just human rights, divine rights too. The divine has rights. If you violate those rights, you are unjust. Just as if you violate a human right, you are unjust. So the uh, Quran gives you a much broader platform from which to think and your world view is much larger than the world view of a secularist and so on. So woe unto those people who disbelieve that they should be warned against a day that they have been promised. Yeah, meaning in the Nidham system of Allah when you have angels who distribute Allah's command the command for those who disbelieve is punishment. That's their share of Allah's command. And the angels will deliver that when the time comes. So this is a part of the whole surah from beginning to end. That is how you wrap up the surah. Understanding that the nidham of Allah is perfect. Human volition comes in, disrupts that perfection. Some are forgiven and unfortunately others are not forgiven. And that's the end of the surah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq to recite the Qur'an, to apply, inshallah, the teachings of the Qur'an. Keep us in his afiyah. Ameen, ya rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala khayr khilq, Muhammadi wa alayhi wa sallam, ya rahmatullahi wa 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 rahmatullahi w